Hello, and welcome to Banter, the official podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. I'm Phoebe Keller, the head of AEI's media department, and I'm here with AEI President Robert Doerr, and we'll be your new Banter co-hosts. Each week, we'll take you inside our think tank for conversations with leading policymakers and thinkers about today's pressing policy issues. Thanks for tuning in. Joining us today on Banter is Jim Capretta, a resident fellow who holds the Milton Friedman Chair here at AEI, where he studies healthcare, entitlement, and U.S. budget policy, as well as global trends in aging, health, and retirement programs. He also serves as a senior advisor to the Bipartisan Policy Center, and since 2011 has been a member of the advisory board of the National Institute for Healthcare Management Foundation. Spent more than 16 years in public service before joining us at AEI in positions including associate director at the White House's Office of Management and Budget and as a senior health analyst at the U.S. Senate Budget Committee and the U.S. House Committee on Ways and Means. Thanks for joining us on Banter, Jim. You're welcome. Thanks for having me on. Very glad to be with both of you. Yes, it's so glad to have you, Jim. And as as Phoebe indicated in her intro, you have a very distinguished background and career. And when I came to AEI, you were the the smartest guy on the block without question, and so respected by everybody, Phoebe. Mm -hmm. People love Jim, and they go to him for tough questions and hard problems, and he gives good answers. So we're very lucky to have someone as great here. And I wanted you to help us out with just sort of setting stage now as we begin the Biden administration without getting into partisan politics or who's right and who's wrong, but just tell us what your assessment of the American healthcare world is and let's divide it into three categories, the sort of the healthcare that people like Phoebe and me and you and others at AI get through our relationship with our employer, the healthcare that people get through the Medicaid program, which is America's largest public health insurance program for low-income Americans and is a huge component of the federal budget, and the healthcare that they get as senior citizens through the Medicare program. And the way in which I've been taught, and maybe Jim, you'll tell me I'm wrong, is the way to assess the quality of healthcare is through three lenses, access, cost, and quality. So let's start with the first one. Well, how do you assess the healthcare world for people that get their health insurance and healthcare through their employer? Well, it's a big topic, but I'd say in general terms, the employer-based system works pretty well on all three of those counts from an employee perspective. Not perfectly, but if you just consider it, The employer system is fairly flexible, and it provides ready access to care to sort of mainstream, high-end facilities and networks of physician groups for the vast, vast majority of working Americans and their families. So if you've got an employer-based plan and you sign up with it, you know, it's oftentimes going to be an insurance plan that allows you to go to the best of the local hospitals and the best of the local physician groups. And that's what you really care about. So in that sense, it's sort of the mainstream way that many millions and tens of millions of Americans are getting access to American medicine, which in a lot of ways is going to be the best in the world. It's highly trained, highly capitalized, very, very effective. Okay. That's all. all, That sounds great. Yeah. All that is good. The problem with the private side of the system, and this very much applies to the employer side, employer portion of it, is it lacks cost discipline. And it lacks cost discipline for a couple of important reasons. The first one being that it is heavily tax subsidized in a way that disincents both the employer and the employee to enroll in more cost-effective health approaches. 
So whatever extra dollar is spent by an employer plan, the federal government, essentially through the tax law, subsidizes about a third of it. Well, hold on there. That subsidy is because they don't tax it as a salary or they don't. That's true. That's true. So you end up with additional insurance coverage instead of cash wages. So on the margins, on the margins, someone who employers tend to, this is not absolute, you can see in the data though, it's very clear that there's been a movement toward compensating workers in the form of health benefits as opposed to cash, because of course the health benefits untaxed and the cash is taxed. It's not surprising that that has occurred, but it has occurred. And so you end up with a health benefit that's probably too expensive and cash compensation that is probably too low. Right. And that's a lot of American workers have forsaken higher wages in return for more generous benefits. That's correct. And in order to really see how workers are doing, you it's wise to look at the extent to which their health care is covered by the employer in addition to their wages. So I get that. The question about the employer, though, so for me, you know, I'm picking the plans for my employees, you and Phoebe and everybody else here at AI. Am I picking bad plans because the federal government's tax treatment of this situation? Is the federal government incentivizing me to to pick plans that are bad for my employees or bad for me? Well, to some degree, yes. But also in part, you can say it's another way of putting it would be that the insurers that are coming to you and offering their services are offering overly expensive coverage, knowing full well that you have an incentive to pick plans that are probably a little more expensive than they should be. So, yeah. Both you, you and the insurers are colluding against the. We've actually been meaning to talk to you about this for quite a while. (laughs) Well, again, I think the employee benefits in that regard. They might get a little more costly plan, and they, but well, you're right. I I get that the system incentivizes more spending than is necessary. Is your point, and I think that's been shown. And and of course, this is also very politically popular. I, I think how many times have you tried to get the tax subsidy removed from the tax code? The hundred? Many, 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 many <laughs> times. Yes. In fact, there was a provision in law that did that effectively did it. And of course, it just got repealed. Right. It's and and you probably have written tax. probably a hundred op-eds about why we shouldn't do that. I, but we keep I doing did. it. Those <laughs> darn politicians, right. those, yeah, that, that democracy. It's sometimes doing the right thing is hard. Yes, yeah. that's right. Yeah. But so, okay, so we get more, more expensive health care than we really need, but it's still pretty good. And just one last thing, why couldn't I make it a little more painful and a little more cost conscious by, and here's the big question, by saying to my employees, they have to pay a bigger share of that more expensive health insurance coverage. Wouldn't that force my employees to come in and say, well, gosh, could you get more reasonable yeah. priced care? Right. Well, this is a really good point and good question. And it has to do with the fact that this tax break that we're talking about, we keep dwelling on, affects all employers. It doesn't just affect AI, it also affects Brookings or CSIS or any other think tank in Washington, and for that matter, every other employer. And so if you unilaterally say, you know what, I'm going to get tough, I'm going to squeeze my health benefit and make my employees pay a little bit more because this is getting out of hand, well, you're, you know, down the street, there may be an employer say, hey, you <laughs> don't want to go. This is Jim's first, first, first threat that he's going to leave <laughs> if I don't stop all this. Okay, I, I got it. So that, that's true. We all are sort of competing for employers, employees, and we want to give them exactly. the best. So one big, you know, you hear periodically over the years, hey, an employer will say, very recently, Amazon, Berkshire Hathaway, 
and JP Morgan got together saying, we're going to fix them, you know, the, our employer-based healthcare system unilaterally. We're going to have some ideas. We're going to fix it on our own. Totally fell apart. Didn't happen. Nothing. They delivered really essentially nothing. Why? Well, because Amazon and Berkshire Hathaway and JP Morgan have to compete for employees and they didn't want to, in the end of the day, do something that felt more onerous on their own workers than what Microsoft or Apple or somebody else was doing with their employee benefits. I'm so, so glad you mentioned that. Systematic. Just for our listeners, that was a kind of a really fascinating thing. These three great players in American capitalism, brilliant leaders and managers, said they were going to combine and solve this problem. And then they turned out they couldn't solve it, or maybe there wasn't a problem, but they went away. They just collapsed. That's exactly right, Jim. And, and so cost is a little high based on incentives, but the quality is very good. And if you are working, and you can get into this, one of these nice plans with an employer, the access is pretty good too, right? I mean, the key ingredient is to work. Very good. Yeah. No, it's, there, isn't, well, there aren't much screens on you getting needed medical attention if you've got an employer-based health plan. Yeah. So it, the access is pretty good. You're going to end up with pretty high quality, you know, not everything is uniform in America, but you're going to end up with pretty high quality hospitals and physician groups that you can go to. So you're going to get pretty good care if you're in a mainstream employer-based plan. Now, we need to talk about one other aspect of this before we turn to Medicare and Medicaid, which is that, you know, one big problem here is that if you're a low-wage worker, remember, this thing is essentially financed on a premium per head basis, right, even through the employer system. So when an employer gives compensation to somebody, they say, okay, you're worth $50,000 in cash, and I'm going to give you a $15,000 health benefit, so you cost $65,000. If that worker, though, is only a $25,000 wage worker, and then you got to pay them a $15,000 health benefit, but they're not worth $40,000 to you, you may not want to give them a $15,000 health benefit. So on the low end of the wage scale, the burden of a health benefit being folded into compensation essentially means there's tension there. Yeah. And a lot of employers don't want to offer the health benefit. And so you have a lot of working people that don't get health benefits from their employer. Yeah, and that does bring us toward Medicaid and Medicare. And so- It does. So let's turn there first. Let's start with Medicaid. Okay, so because you're now talking about low-wage workers, often low-wage workers try to get their health care through the government. And even when they're not, either with where they're working or working at low wages. And so tell us about access and quality and cost in the Medicaid program. But as you do that, also- to give us the relative sizes of these three groups in the overall population. Okay, well, just to do that quickly, the employer base is going to be about 160 million working age people, something like that, and their families. Mm-hmm. Medicare is on the order of 50 million people or so, and Medicaid is now providing health insurance, separated from its role providing other services to people, but for health insurance purposes, probably 80 million, something like that. Yeah. And then you've got the Affordable Care Act providing $10 million, and then the rest are basically uninsured. Okay. So those are rough, rough numbers. Okay. But in terms of Medicaid, Medicaid's gigantic, and it's become our safety net, the nation's safety net health insurance program. So for people that are very low wage or maybe not working at all, there really isn't much of an option other than getting health insurance through Medicaid. So it's become de facto, our safety net health insurance system in the country. And what to say about it? It's very, very big, (laughs) low cost on a per head basis. 
because the Medicaid programs around the country essentially just just pay a per, you know, for the vast majority of the enrollees now, they're getting a per capita amount on a monthly basis to what are called Medicaid managed care plans. That would be about 70, 80% of all Medicaid enrollees are now in these kinds of plans. So these states are just hiring insurance companies that focus on Medicaid and they pay them a monthly fee like an HMO and say, please take care of this population. For okay, this so just stop there for just a second. So I work at AI, I've got two kids. I'm covered by the health insurance plan provided by my employer. That plan costs me and my employer combined. Can you give me a rough sense of what a family plan would cost in the employer-based system? The average, I think, is in the order of $20,000 a year now. So $20,000 a year for me and my two kids, Mm -hmm. split between my employer and my employee. What does Medicaid pay for a family of two? It would be approximately 60% of that. 60% of that. So they pay whatever that is. $12,000. Now, now, you thought the $20,000 was too high. And now you're saying yeah, the 12 is too is. low. <laughs> sort of like, is there well, a just I right? For... I didn't necessarily, I would love it if everybody in America was at the 12,000, right? I mean, that'd be fantastic, right? But again, the clear point is you say they're paying less than they should, or they're paying pretty low amount, but they are paying a lot. I mean, it's $12,000 a year. Is uh, a... That's really for a family coverage. That would be like four people. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, but that's a, that, no doubt it's a lot of money. Okay. So why are they paying so low? You know, it's basically because they use networks. We talked about what you get when you get an employer plan. You get something pretty different if you're in Medicaid. You're in these Medicaid managed care plans, sign contracts with providers that are really generally focused on serving the Medicaid population. So that would not be every hospital in the community, but the hospitals that are predominantly able and want to serve Parts of the community where lots of low-income people might be living, okay? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of public hospitals that are in Medicaid managed care plans. Community hospitals too, but a lot of public hospitals. You also have physician networks that are going to be, in a sense, designed and want to, as they see it as part of their public mission, to serve the Medicaid population. So they become part of these Medicaid managed care plans. They sign contracts with them, and they try to provide high-quality care, but they end up getting paid quite a bit less than the physician groups that are servicing the employer system. So on the There's quality crossover, obviously. Yeah. But... So on the quality, you've talked about cost. On the quality mm-hmm. side, I think you're you're getting close to saying the Medicaid program recipients get what the government pays for. And the if they use that expression, you get what are you saying it's second quality healthcare? This is a point of great controversy, so you always have to choose your words carefully. There's lots of research around this, as you can imagine. And I would say it this way, is that Medicaid, like, you know, because they're accessing medical care from the same, they go to the same training as the physicians that are servicing the employer system. They go to the, the hospitals, have the same accreditation systems. There's a level of quality for American healthcare, whether you're in Medicaid or not, that is very high. It's still very good healthcare. It's heavily uh, regulated, too. But it, I mean- there's a quality regulated yeah. by the states. Yeah. But the access could be more limited. You know, not every physician is going to be willing to take Medicaid unlimited. They might take 10% of their patient load as Medicaid, but not 70%. And so, you know, your ability to access primary care physicians in particular is probably more limited in Medicaid than it is in the employer system because they pay a lot less. Now, does that mean, though, if you have a very serious affliction, 
and you're in Medicaid, you're not going to be serviced well. I don't think necessarily that's the case. You're still going to have very good care if you have cancer. You're still going to have very good care if you have diabetes. But, you know, the number of physicians participating is a little bit less. Your access points are a little bit less. And so, yeah, you know, all things being equal, would people prefer to be in, many people would prefer to be in an employer plan than Medicaid, of course. And on the access to the insurance, I mean, given all the press pushed by the sort of effort to sign everybody up for these programs and give them Medicaid as a matter of right, is it hard for a low-income American to enroll in Medicaid and at least get the coverage? It depends on the state a little bit. Some states try to make it quite easy. Some states try to make it a little bit, you know, a little bit more of a screen where they say, do you, you know, what's your situation? What's your income? What's your employment situation, et cetera? So it depends a lot on the state. In general, however, it's pretty easy. If you have a demonstrably low income in most states, you're going to be able to get on. Remember that the vast majority of states, all but 14, have agreed to the Medicaid expansion under the Affordable Care Act. Right. That provides coverage to anybody up to 138% of the poverty line. And so if you encounter the Affordable Care Act exchanges, you go online and say, I want health insurance, and then it's determined that your income is below that level, and you're in a state that has expanded Medicaid, you're automatically going to be put into Medicaid. And so that's how a lot of people end up on Medicaid if they, you know, they're in a marginal job and low income because of that. So, yeah, that's, that's, that's the Medicaid that's story. A, um, yeah, that's the Medicaid story. So what about Medicare? My relatives that are older, they, they act like they're pretty happy, happy with whatever it is they're getting from that program. I believe it's a fairly popular program. Is, should it be popular? And, and what's, the stat, what's the story there? I think it should be, of course. Yeah. I mean, if you're from the perspective of a person who's just a beneficiary consuming the services, it's quite good. I mean, you know, you, paid, you had to pay a payroll tax through your working life. So, you, you know, you feel like you paid for it to a certain degree. You get to retirement age and signing up for it is pretty easy. And once you're into the system, most people end up in some kind of organized way of getting their Medicare. Either they are getting it through a managed care plan, what's called a Medicare Advantage plan. That's about a third of the people in Medicare. Or they're in an unmanaged Medicare, but they have supplemental insurance that kind of pays for anything that Medicare doesn't. So either way, somebody else, not them, is dealing with their bills and their cost sharing to some degree, not all, but a lot of people are in that kind of circumstance, and they don't have to pay too much other than the monthly premium. And a lot of seniors like that because they just pay the premium, they don't have to worry about the bills, and they just sort of get taken care of. And when they need services, they go get them, and the insurance pays for it. So, you know, in a certain sense, you might say, what's not to like if that's the situation, right? I think the issue with Medicare, like it is with Social Security, isn't so much the satisfaction of the population enrolled in it. They're very happy with it. The situation is, what is the situation for the whole country paying for it? And it's a very big and expensive program. And it, along with Social Security and Medicaid, those are the big three. The big three. You know, they're on track to to kind of bankrupt the country. So one way or another, they're going to have to be revisited in terms of how the country finances them, and Medicare is a big part of that story. So those are the three, and, and from in terms of quality, that lower-income people may have a not quite as good quality or not as, as easy access, but there is a program for them, and many, many are enrolled, and they're enrolled fairly easily, and they quality is regulated by pretty intense 
regulatory standards, but still maybe not quite as good as the private care provided to people that get their health insurance through employers or through Medicare, but it's there. Seniors are covered. So what's the problem? Well, I think that the problem in American healthcare is in a general sense is the same problem we talked about in the employer sense. We talked about it specifically in the context of how it's taxed, but generally throughout the system, it's not really a marketplace. There's not enough cost discipline on, at the point of choosing what kind of insurance you're going to get and then also what kind of services you're going to get to make the discipline of a marketplace applied on the cost side. So but really, isn't the way that, another way to say that is the problem is I the could, cost. It costs too much. It definitely costs. I mean, you went right to the answer or the philosophical problem with the way it's set up <laughs> or what caused the problem. But the problem is it's too expensive. It's way too expensive. Okay. So what are we doing about it? Well, I, I just wanted to give you the too abstract for your liking reason. But, uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm not an abstract. So you, that is correct. No, no, but basically, healthcare really can only be disciplined by one of two things. Either you regulate it, which is what most countries do. You price regulate it. You have budgets on it. You control it through a public regulatory or legislative process of some sort. That's one way. And that's the way basically all other high-income countries, to some degree, do more of that than the United States does. Mm -hmm. Or you try to bring some discipline to it through consumer preferences and markets. And I've always been on the side, long, you know, it's a very uphill battle, of saying for uh, the United States, we're, we're a country where we're going to want to have a marketplace to do this because, A, our regulatory system is cumbersome and not very nimble and kind of blunt. And people are going to be unsatisfied with the fact that it leads to waiting and queues and perhaps lower quality over time. And so, you know, if you don't want the regulatory approach, which have to, would have to be run through HHS or CMS or some combination of them with the state, if you don't want that, then you really do need to think about how would you build the marketplace to discipline it better than we have today. But, and I don't want to at all advocate for a greater state role or regulatory role in healthcare. I get that. But I think you said that they all do it differently. And in all of those places, it costs less. In the other countries you're talking yes. about. Yes. Yeah. In other high, absolutely. We are well above where every other country is, probably by an order of magnitude of one third. So we, Germany would be kind of close, but they're about a third behind us. So we pay more, but don't have a market-based system. So we've got, to get the, we've got the worst of both <laughs> worlds. We That's have higher correct. costs yeah. and still have a pretty heavily regulated system. Right, 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 right. So, man. You know, one of the big frustrations is, you know, you have this perception, of course, that if you ask sort of this, like a lay outsider, maybe even someone from a different country, say, oh, America has this free market healthcare system, and that's why it costs so much. And, it's, I, you know, that's actually kind of not almost not the exact opposite of what we have. Yes. We have, we don't have a free market. What we have is a kind of heavily regulated, kind of heavily subsidized system without any market discipline. Yeah. That's basically what we have. Yeah. And so and in the trade-off, you've decided to fight for the market-based discipline and forego getting cost reduction. Well, I wouldn't quite put it that way. <laughs> I mean, I'm for cost reduction. Believe me. I mean, I had a job at the Office of Management and Budget where I oversaw Medicare and Medicaid as part of my job. So believe me, I, I, I've approved many a regulation to cut costs. <laughs> okay. Okay. 
Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I was in favor of basically, you know, tightening them up as, as much as I could, you know, so there's, if you're running a regulated system, you might as well make it as low cost as you possibly can, which is certainly what, what my objective was yeah. during those years. Yeah. That's not the same thing that was saying you've got a systematic solution to the problem that ensures high quality and low cost over time. That's what we want. Yes. So you don't have to have, you don't have to rely on Congress or some regulatory process to try to keep things in check. It would be brought in check just like everything else is brought in check by the fact that people don't want to pay more. So they find an instant lower cost, higher value options to present themselves and the solution just emerges, right? I mean, if you had a real market, all these hospitals and physicians that are overcharging everybody would have to find ways to do more with less and they, and they would. So we've just finished the four years of a Republican administration that might have been interested in market-based solutions or efforts to reduce costs or something. Before we get to what the new administration should be focused on and what you hope that they will do in order to address the problem that you see, how did the Trump administration do on reducing costs or introducing market-based solutions to the healthcare system in the United States? Well, it's certainly a mixed record. I think in the big picture, it would be hard to talk about the subject without sort of identifying the fact that President Trump, you know, came into office saying he was going to replace the Affordable Care Act with just what you described, some kind of better system based on markets, but it would protect people. And without so much heavy government regulation and subsidization, it would deliver better results. So he campaigned on that and, you know, really talked about it a lot. But the truth is they never really presented anything that came close to meeting that lofty objective. And so I think there you'd have to say on the legislative front, which is really important because these things, you try to do things entirely through regulation, you know, the next team comes in, the current team, Biden team, they're going to undo a lot of what you did. So they had an opportunity to try to put their stamp on things in 2017 or 2018, and they kind of, they missed their chance. So there, I think you'd have to say that was a missed opportunity. In terms of what they did through regulation, which is what they could control, I'd say there they did one really, I'd say one really important big thing that I hope endures and lasts. And that was to put out a regulation recently upheld in court that forces both the hospital systems, physician groups, and insurers to be much more upfront about their pricing and disclose it in a way that'll be more usable over time for consumers and payers to figure out what exactly is going on. Hugely resisted by the insurers, fought tooth and nail by the hospitals. So the Trump administration broke through all of that opposition, put out a regulation that it's not perfect, but it is the biggest change in this front ever done and can be built upon and made better over time. So I really hope the Biden folks keep it because that is potentially something you could build on and really start to build hey, why are we paying, you know, three times as much for the exact same service for two hospitals that are separated by two miles, which believe it or not happens all the time. So I think that's a big, big deal. And I'm hoping it's a lot of momentum and a lot of focus in the, in the next year or two. On the other thing, they've done a, a few other things, but that's, I would say, in terms of the conversation we've had over the last half hour, that's the biggest game changer. Yeah. And that's, that's good news. That's interesting to hear. And, and I didn't know that you thought that it was that significant a change. So that's a little bit of progress. You know, everybody always hears about bending the cost curve. Could you give us the status of the cost curve now? 
it did bend a little bit at some point in the wake of the recession. I remember, you know, the rise in healthcare costs went below the inflation rate briefly. Are we back up with a cost curve that, notwithstanding this important change, is back above the inflation rate? Well, the pandemic has totally changed the picture for 2020. And there's a big expectation that everything will kind of rebound and bounce back and maybe overtake what was lost in 2020 and 2021. So 2021 could be a year of very strong healthcare cost growth because lots of people did not do services in 2020 waiting for the pandemic to ebb. And if it does ebb, (laughs) then they'll schedule what they were thinking they needed done in 2021. Now, that doesn't apply, of course, to the emergency things and other things, but a lot of people did pull back on their use of services in medical care based on the pandemic. So cost growth in 2020 was quite suppressed. That is unlikely to last. Unusual circumstances. Yeah, very unusual, obviously. But, you know, look, I mean, the bottom line is what we were talking about throughout this conversation is that Medicare and Medicaid are heavily regulated. So they can keep costs kind of in check and they hold it to about in the last 15 years or so, they've been keeping it at about GDP growth, more or less. The private side is not. The private side has been growing probably one to two percentage points faster than GDP growth. So it continues to escalate at a rate that outpaces people's incomes. That's a source of a lot of frustration and financial pressure. So, you know, the truth is the private side is probably the bigger cost problem right now. Over the long run, it's going to be Medicare and Medicaid, but particularly Medicare because of demographics, so many people on the program, and, you know, just the pressures that come from trying to service a very big program like that was just through a regulated rate system. So one specific element of reform in the Trump administration by regulation that I wanted to ask you about concerning Medicaid is the very late in the administration approval of a block grant in Tennessee. Have you followed that? And do you think I have. Um, that experimentation at the state level is a good thing, worth it, is, is going to be a waste of time? What's your take on that? I'm very, very much for state experimentation through Medicaid. You know, there are big fights at the national level on various questions. And, you know, if a state really wants to go down this road, I think they're, they have the right to do so. They've been elected by their own people. They're on the ground there. There's lots of different things going on. They're under the same kind of pressure as people are at the national level. I mean, so I'd say if they want to try a block grant, I think they should definitely be allowed to do so. I hope the Biden administration lets them and see what happens. You know, the proof is in the pudding, really, right? I mean, does it help control costs? What does it change in terms of the incentives at the state level? Do they still deliver good care to people? And, you know, are people covered in Tennessee? I think Tennessee and many of these states that have resisted the Medicaid expansion, a big problem they face, and I don't know if they'll fix it in a block grant, is that. If you didn't expand Medicaid, you've got a lot of poor people in the state that don't have a reasonable pathway to health insurance. That is, if you're not eligible for Medicaid, you're below the poverty line. You're not eligible for the Affordable Care Act system. You're not eligible for an employer plan because your wages are too low. And you're not eligible for Medicaid. So what are you going to do, buy on your own? I mean, you just don't have enough money to buy a health insurance plan on your own. That's the reality. So I think as a country, we need to deal with that. There are only a few million people in that circumstance, but Tennessee is one of the places where that's going on. And so as they do this block grant, my hope is that they find a way to cover this people they call in the coverage gap, so to speak. 
The key to the block grant, I, I have a lot of hope for it as well, because I think at the state level, given the size of the block grant that was you know, given to them at the rate of their previous spending, I presume, they can do some things that will, and they'll have an incentive to do those things because they get to keep, I think, a portion of, or maybe all of their savings and then reinvest it in other things that they, are, they think are more important for their, the residents of their state. So I, I agree with you. I thought that that approving that block grant opportunity, and I hope the Biden people let Tennessee complete the experiment and see what happens. Exactly. Okay. So now we've talked about the big questions. I do feel like you're committed to, and I want you to be, I don't care, you can do what you want, but you're committed to fighting for a transformation of the United States healthcare system to a market-based system and notwithstanding the political opposition to it, which seems to be unrelenting. I mean, yeah, I just want to ask you, I mean, do you think the the political appetite for a wholesale change of the healthcare system to a more market-based system is there? Well, I wouldn't, I don't think framing it that way is particularly is going to win at all. So no, I don't think, I don't think that's the case. If you put it to the public this way, if you say, we're going to have a mixed public-private system, that is, there's always going to be an element in American healthcare of subsidization. There's always going to be an element of regulation. But would you like it to have some cost discipline based on some market principles? Or would you rather just have the government try to regulate it and keep costs under control that way? I think most people probably would pick government, but not everybody. So you have to win that argument. Yeah. So this is not a question of, you know, some nirvana free market health system where the government just lets everything run and we see what happens. That's not going to happen. I think one of the hard truths of this is, is that there is market failure in healthcare. Okay, so it, it is different, okay, for a couple of reasons that were identified a long time ago. So there will be some regulation, but the regulation can be put in place at the service of good incentives for the private sector, consumers, to both pick high value and low cost. And there's plenty of evidence that that actually occurs. When you design something right and you give the providers that kind of a choice and the consumers that kind of choice, they move in the direction of lower costs and higher quality. So you just have to kind of get the incentives right. As always, people follow incentives. And That's just, what AI has been preaching forever. So, right. You know, and and just so we're clear, I had a conversation with a United States senator about this. And that ability to make the right choice on cost and quality, you believe in an area as complicated as healthcare and healthcare insurance, recipients of Medicaid can exercise or the people caught in the gap between Medicaid and private health insurance, you're not concerned about their ability to navigate the healthcare market. Well, and in an unregulated way, then probably not. I I mean, what I've been trying to say is what I advocate for is what I would call a structured market so that when someone makes the choice of what kind of plan they're enrolled in, there isn't a obfuscation of the choice involved. That if you have a basically the same type of plan. It's covering the same services. One is better managed than the other. One has use of lower cost but high value hospitals and doctors, while the other one has a loosely arranged system that costs a lot more. And the the price difference is in the premium. And that's the only difference between the two plans. One is well run, one is poorly run. And the difference is a $25 a month premium out of your pocket. Yeah, you'll be the first to say, you know what, I'd rather pay $25 less. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
it's not rocket science, but you got to make sure the choice is structured right, okay? And so much of our, our system is intended to obscure that clarity that you need in the market to make the right kind of choice. Mm-hmm. And the fight, you know, to be candid about it, the fight the insurers and the hospitals are putting up against price transparency is exactly this fight. Yeah. That they're, they're trying to make it more difficult for people to do a strict apples to apples comparison of their pricing. They hate that because it'll put a huge pressure on them to perform better. And but that's exactly what we need. Yep. Yeah. Looking ahead to the Biden administration, which is just beginning, I mean, one of the biggest challenges they're going to face is this vaccine distribution and rollout, which I know you've written about a lot. So, I mean, you've said that their plan to distribute 100 million doses in the first 100 days actually isn't ambitious enough. Could you talk about that a little bit and what so far has been kind of the stumbling blocks to a pretty slow rollout so far? Well, I mean, let's be realistic about the whole this whole conversation, which is that like everything, this is a complicated story. Part of what's gone on is failure by the Trump administration to kind of take ownership and own the issue and manage it better, right? Let's be honest. They, they really wanted from the get-go to make this sort of a the federal government, government does what it does. They pass it on to the states. The states then have to figure out sort of the implementation of a lot of what's been going on for the last year. You have to be candid and say that that lack of kind of an assertive federal role here in the middle of a global pandemic and a national crisis. Now, I'll just put my cards. I don't think that was the wise choice here. Right. They also did this in the vaccine sense. They got it to the point where we got two good vaccines. They set up how to get the deliveries to the states. But really, you know, kind of an organized plan for tracking the supply, making sure there was a clear understanding of how to design the last mile, who gets vaccinated where and when, how they can sign up for it. These are things that could have been designed over six months. Mm -hmm. And they just kind of didn't do it. Now, having said that, they didn't, it's not like they didn't do anything. They basically just said to the states, you figure it out. And the states have time to figure it out. So on the other side of the coin, things are starting to get better just because they had to. So they started from a dead start, and here we are, you know, a month in, and they're, they are already at a million vaccinations a day. So is it a mixed story? Yeah, it's not, it wasn't as good as it could have been. There's lots of frustration and confusion around the country because of the first part of what I talked about. On the other hand, the system is starting to self-correct, and they're at about 1.1 million a day or so, something like that, over the last several days. Pretty good. The Biden team comes in and like everything, you know, they want to trash everything that came before them. Yeah, they seem to be saying they inherited no plan at all. (laughs) Yeah, it was a shambolic mess and, you know, that kind of thing. Right, right. Right. And, you know, a lot of people nod their heads and say it doesn't look great. On the other hand, the system, however imperfect it is, is delivering a million a day already. Yeah. So when they come in and say, yeah, we're going to do 100 million over 100 days, that actually is almost the wrong signal to send coming in. I don't, I don't want to be too critical because they're yeah. just getting started here. But we're going to have 200 million vaccines by the end of March delivered by Pfizer and Moderna combined. We probably had 40 million or so sent out to the state. So there's 160 million in supply coming over the next, you know, we're talking about 70 days. That's a lot of vaccines. Yeah. We're talking about 15 million a week or so. They ought to be 
vaccinating basically 2 million a day over the next 70 days. If we really want to use the supply that's going to be coming online, their target needs to be double basically the 1 million a day. And we may get there anyway, but I think sort of the sound good 100 million, 100 days sounds good, but honestly, it's a little bit just out of step with what really needs to happen at this point. But your point that the states might be able to do it, it could happen anyway. It could happen anyway. Yeah. I doubt it will. I mean, because now we've got a break, new team coming in, new directions are going to be ordered. So things are going to change, okay? So it's not going to be left entirely to the states, and there'll be a more federal direction about what happens. But the federal government can get to $2 million a day, too, working with the states. So the states going to have a huge role here, no matter what. Mm-hmm. And But they're going to end up with, you're going to have a little more federal direction direction going on about, you know, how much supply is coming each week. And I think some of that is probably good. I think a big, big problem is the lack of capacity for planning, right? Nobody knows what they're going to get in terms of a shipment next week. So how can you schedule yeah. a clinic for vaccinations if you don't even know how many doses you're going to get? I think that's probably the number one problem. They need a lot more transparency into supply over the coming months. That way, everybody can plan for the coming month, organize the delivery system for the coming month, mm-hmm. hire the people for the coming month, schedule the slots for the coming month. That's really what they need to do. So you and Scott Gantz have been writing about this topic extremely well, and I recommend our readers to looking at what you've been writing about the vaccine. And we're going to be focusing on that because that's the crisis the country's going through right now. But we're going to get through this and looking forward to writing and thinking and researching about these issues when there is a democratic administration, what is something you think could happen in the next four years in broader healthcare reform discussion, even though the president is a Democrat who may be less inclined to be pushing for market-based solutions? That's a good question. I mean, I think, you know, look, the, the, the Venn diagram of crossover here is going to be pretty limited. But I do think one of the opportunities might be something around, it's kind of a centrist idea. It wouldn't be more, it's not going to be something that a lot of the Republicans in the Congress are going to be jumping up and down excited about. But I think something that probably would be helpful, and maybe both parties, or at least portions of both parties could get behind, is something called automatic enrollment into health insurance. In other words, we still have in the Democratic Party, President Biden in particular, are very worried about the fact that the United States still has 32 million or so people without health insurance coverage. And I'm not one of those people that says health insurance doesn't matter. I think it matters a lot. People should have health insurance. And so what to do about that 30 million? Well, there's a lot of analysis, including from CBO, Congressional Budget Office recently, that shows that basically two thirds of the 30 million are already eligible for something and they just haven't enrolled in it. And so instead of creating a new public option or a new program, Maybe the parties could get together and say, you know, if we were a little more organized about identifying when someone is eligible but not enrolled, we could just put them into coverage much more easily and then let them opt out if they don't want it. So sort of presumption of coverage, especially if the coverage would be basically free to them, which it would be for a lot of them. So, you know, there's probably 10 million or so people that are eligible either for Medicaid the Children's Health Insurance Program, or near zero premiums through the Affordable Care Act, plus another 10 million people that are eligible for an employer plan where the employer is going to pay for most of their premium. So between those two things, that's, you know, that's 20 million people. That's a big 
spent in the uninsured. Mm -hmm. And by the way, a large portion of the remaining 10 million are people that are living in the country without proper documentation. And, you know, there we need to do something also, but other countries also, you know, it's not like you can go to the UK, you know, go there without being, you know, properly residing there and sign up to the National Health Service. They don't let you do that either. So they do provide something. And so we need to do some kind of handling of that situation also. But by and large, we don't necessarily need to create a whole new thing if we work together. We probably could get two-thirds of the people covered relatively easily. I think you're right that that's the sort of thing that if you could get Republicans to support, Democrats would like too. I come from a different side of the social services world where we're very suspicious of automatic enrollment in various programs. <laughs> uh, sorry, Jim. No, I know. I know. And, and, I know and we right. believe in efforts of the individual. But maybe in healthcare, there's a, a need for an exception. One thing about automatic enrollment, does enrollment of certain populations, even though it comes with the cost of the premiums, does it ultimately have any effect on costs on the downward side? Well, I mean, here, I think it's important to realize that basically, if someone experiences a big event, like they, they get They're going to get health care and it's going to be paid for by They're going to get anyway. health care anyway, but they might be delayed two or three months if they're uninsured. Okay. There's, there's lots of literature around this would show that, you know, if you had health insurance, your willingness and readiness to get care, your knowing where to go for starters, knowing what physician to contact, et cetera, you know, it just goes up a lot if you're already enrolled in health insurance. And so people are going to end up probably getting better care and their health outcomes are going to do improve if they have health insurance as opposed to not having it. Now, there's a lot of fighting about this over time, but I think that most of the data is on that side of what I just described. And so there's probably a marginal cost increase here from automatic enrollment. But I think in terms of the improved health outcomes, this is one place where it'd be worth it. Now, that doesn't mean I'm for lots of cost cutting in other places. Frankly, I don't mean to be impolite, but your health insurance and my health insurance is probably costing the taxpayers a little bit too much. So you and I should be paying more and people that are... Yeah, I know that you want to increase taxes on me. I got that. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm aware of that. Uh, yeah. And you've, had a, you've fought that fight. Don't and, worry. You have, the Democratic Party and most of the Republicans are on your side. Oh, yeah. There's no doubt. That's yeah, yeah. Very, your proposal there is extremely unpopular with Americans. Exactly. And no one likes exactly. to pay more taxes, even if it is a non-cash benefit. I wanted to finish with one sort of out of the box question, and that is, and I just was curious about your interest in and your knowledge or, or hope for big transformations to the delivery of healthcare through technology or new ways of caring for people or monitoring their progress with conditions or with medications. Do you see some transformational cost savings potential in any of that, or is that all Silicon Valley hooey? <laughs> I think there's some great potential. I'll point to two things. The first one being the successful introduction of the of the new technology vaccines that are being used for the COVID-19 pandemic. So these two vaccines, the Pfizer-BioNTech and the, the Moderna vaccines, are using a new technology that basically injects into your system coding, mRNA coding, that then allows your body to produce a necessary protein that then induces your immune response. Because this has now been done successfully, at least on an emergency basis, through these two vaccines, 
It has proved the concept that pe- people have been working on for a long time. It has applications that go well beyond infectious diseases. If you can, using this technology, get the body itself to produce a missing protein, that can have implications for all kinds of afflictions, including cancer, including many other ailments, including genetic disorders. So the Keeping people healthy reduces costs. Yeah, well, absolutely. Let's hope, you know. So a lot of things are in the works in that regard. But the fact that they, the, the big difficulty with this technology was stabilizing the genetic instruction so it didn't dissolve on the way from the, the needle to through your body, you know. So that's why it's in these lipid bubbles and it's mm-hmm. frozen and, you know, so on and so forth. But anyway, they figured it all that out. And that has potential. The, has huge potential. Yeah. So that's exciting. I think the other big thing, more a little bit more mundane, but fun and good is just the introduction finally of video conferencing for a lot of health services, telemedicine, they call it, but, you know, basically using a Zoom call with your provider to kind of cut through some things. I think that does have good potential. You know, I mean, a lot of people like it. And for mental health services in particular, it seems to be quite popular. Yeah, I've never understood uh, why that hasn't. Who fights that? The medical industrial complex? Insurers, basically. Insurers would fight it by saying, look, you know, it's not going to substitute it. It's just going to add, you know, there's never any substitution. So, yeah, great. We'll pay for, you know, 10 new telemedicine visits a month, but we'll still get the in-person visits too. You know, they won't go away. So, uh, you know, they, they worry that it's additive rather than substituting out for things that already are going on. So they dispute that it will be cost reducing. I think given how bad our system is in some ways in terms of experimenting and, you know, I'd rather just go ahead and try it. And there's a risk that it'd be a little bit more additive in terms of cost. But I, I think some disruption here would be good. So I'm, I'm for it. Okay. Well, this has been a great conversation, Jim. Thank you very much for our listeners. Jim really is America's leading healthcare scholar, and we're very proud to have him at AEI. He's going to pound away at his efforts to change the system <laughs> as long as he can. Right, Jim? You're not going to give up. Of course not. No, no, no. Keep up the fight. And there are good things happening, too. It's not, we haven't lost every single battle. We, we lose a lot, but every <laughs> once in a while we break through. So. That's right. Phoebe, anything more to add? No, I, don't, I think we covered it. All right. Thanks yeah. a lot, Jim. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the discussion today. Please remember to subscribe and rate the podcast. Feel free to send us any feedback or suggestions at banter at AEI.org.